You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles at this time and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 21, as we had finished our last sermon series in Nahum last week, be a good time then to uh, start to focus on Easter coming up, and specifically as this is Palm Sunday, think of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as we, we turn here to Matthew's gospel, we're going to see in verse 10, the question asked, who is this? Who is this? Who, who is this one uh, whose praises are being sung, who's being declared as the Messiah? Who is this that's stirring up such a commotion? And we're going to see the answer that's given uh, is less than stellar. And there are many that profess with their mouth who Jesus is, profess that they are followers of Christ. They, they come to church at least on Easter and Christmas at the very least, and maybe some other holidays. Or even those who do regularly come on Sunday. There are many throughout our nation, or many around us who come and make a profession of faith of Jesus, sing his praises when the songs are played, and yet cannot really give a stellar answer of who he is. Who is he to them? You know, Suzanne and I were talking one time and talking about those different ones that we know that have sat under the preaching of the gospel for years, even from childhood, and yet cannot regurgitate the gospel to you and ask, when asked, how is one saved? Who, who is Jesus Christ? And it shows a, a, a problem in the heart. It's, this is a heart issue. Do we truly know who Jesus is and truly, truly know, not just giving lip service, but we know in the posture and the, the, the living out of our lives who Christ is and why he has come and what it is that we are putting our hope and our trust in him for. As we... Look at our text here for this morning. We see here Jesus has entered into the, the beginning of the Passion Week, just days before his crucifixion. And our text here uh, picks up with Jesus and his disciples having been making their way to Jerusalem. And just before here in chapter 21, when we come to the end of uh, chapter 20, we see Jesus and his disciples come from Jericho uh, with a great crowd following and he encounters two blind men, and he heals them. Now, this would not have been the first time, by any means, that Jesus encountered a blind man. And it's not the first time that Matthew tells us about Jesus' encounter with a blind man or blind men. But nonetheless, it's significant. And each time Jesus came in contact with a blind man and healed him, it was significant because this is something that the prophet, specifically the prophet Isaiah, said that when Messiah came, this is what he would do. This is how you can recognize him. 
You know, we see earlier in Matthew chapter 11, where John the Baptist has been put in prison by Herod. And John, he may be sitting in prison thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah, if the Messiah is here, why am I still sitting in prison? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or should we still be waiting for another? And we see Jesus' reply to John's disciples in verse 4 of chapter 11. There we read, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Uh, Jesus answered John, to whether or not he is the Messiah, by pointing to what the prophet said about him. Specifically, again, the prophet Isaiah. And these things are what John's disciples heard and saw about Jesus. And we see in chapter 11, verse 2, that it's what John had heard as well. These things point to who Jesus is. Uh, John had already been pointed to who Jesus is. Uh, God revealed to John who Jesus was. And yet in his circumstances, he had some questions, which I think we can all understand that. And so the the reassurance of the truth of Jesus, he points to in Jesus fulfilling what the prophets said he would do. That he is truly the Messiah. Matter of fact, as you study through Matthew's gospel, you see that Matthew's goal is to show who Jesus is, to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king of the Jews. And again, that's, that's exactly what we see of Jesus in the section of the narrative that we come to this morning, of seeing Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This points to his identity as the Messiah, as the king. And so let's, let's read our text here for this morning. In chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. As we dig into this passage here for this morning, we see that when the disciples were near Jerusalem with Jesus, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, which has significance for the Messiah. 
And Jesus sent two of his disciples into the village to get a donkey and her colt. And why did Jesus tell them to do this? Well, verses 4 and 5, I think, tell us. Again, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. Here, I think, what we see is Jesus deliberately fulfilling prophecy. I think verse 4 makes that clear. It would seem here, this prophecy that's being fulfilled, at least what Matthew quotes, the first line comes from Isaiah chapter 62, and the rest of the prophecy comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus said these things. He told them to go do this. He gave them this task so that he would fulfill the prophet's words. And I think we've talked about this before, that there have been those who have argued against Jesus being who he claimed to be, argued against Jesus being the Messiah, being God come in the flesh, saying that he didn't really fulfill prophecy as his claim, but that he organized his life in such a way that it would look like he fulfilled prophecy. And maybe some listening to this now can say, yeah, see, see there you go, right there. He, he, he organized his life, he knew what the prophet said, so he did the things in order to make people think he was the Messiah, make people think he was the king but he really wasn't. Now, saying that there were things that Jesus deliberately did to fulfill prophecy does not really argue against him being Messiah for a few reasons. One, what it really just points to is the fact that Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was the Messiah. And so he deliberately did the things that it was foretold that Messiah was going to come and do. But also, too, there are other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life that he could not have prearranged. He could not make it just look like he was the Messiah fulfilling these things because there's things he could not control if he was nothing more than a mere man. Uh, for instance, he would not be able to arrange his heritage, his ancestry. He would not be able to arrange his birthplace. Uh, it would even be a pretty hard task to arrange even the way he died. There are things that if he was just a man, he could not arrange this to make it look like he was Messiah. And yet still, there are things that he did deliberately do, as we see here. And we see uh, even in other places in, in Matthew as well, in the gospel writers. He fulfills the scriptures. Now, we see that there today are, are those that are charlatans and tricksters, just as there was in the New Testament days that performed such things as false signs and false miracles. They did these tricks and these illusions to make it look like they were someone from God, and, and we do see that today as well. But even in the, the miraculous things that Scripture said Messiah would come and do, uh, Jesus came and fulfilled these things, these things that were uh, signs and wonders that only God could do. Only God's work. And so again, we, we see Jesus truly is all that he said he would be and that he is. He is God. He is the Lord. He is the promised Messiah. He is Israel's king. On the fulfillment of prop prophecy, Alec Matia, he says this, 
In the New Testament, factual fulfillment of the Old Testament comes about in two ways. Sometimes fulfillment, like the birth at Bethlehem, are the way, or the way of the soldiers shared, excuse me, or the way the soldiers shared out the Lord's clothing, happened the way events turned out, without any conscious cooperation by those involved. God was sovereignly at work bringing his word to pass, whether in the decree of Caesar Augustus or in the self-serving acts of the Roman executioner. God rules the world to achieve his promises and purposes. He has said, and he will do it. This is the dignity of the Old Testament as the word of God. But sometimes fulfillment came through knowing obedience, as when Jesus said, I thirst, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. The Old Testament was the book of God in which he found the will of God, and through his obedience, this book masterminded his perfect life. So Jesus, again, deliberately fulfilling prophecy, as we see here. But what is this prophecy? What is he fulfilling here exactly? Well, in this section of Zechariah, in verses 1 through 8, we see God's judgment proclaimed on his people's enemies. And the sovereign God would unfold the events of history in order to bring about a king for his people. A king that would one day make it so that no oppressor shall ever march over them again. And that's what we see in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 8. And since we're talking about a king for God's people, we're talking about a son of David. Uh, This king, as we see here, would be righteous. The son of David would be victorious for his people. And yet, this king comes not on a charging white steed, uh, at least not as of yet, but he comes in humility, riding on a young donkey. And the verses that follow verse 9 in Zechariah chapter 9 speak of the king restoring Israel, bringing complete peace as this king would rule over all the earth. And though Jesus did come and he fulfilled verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9, we still wait for him to come again and fulfill the rest of this prophecy. You see, because the Old Testament prophets sometimes spoke of things uh, within Christ's first and second coming without too much distinction between the two. Uh, we refer to this as mountaintop prophecies. And again, I think we've, we've discussed this, uh, that when you look at a mountain range from a distance and you can look at the peaks of the mountain, you, you can't see how far apart those mountains are, uh, that from a distance it may look like one mountain comes right after the other as you look at the peaks. And it's not until you get on top of that first peak that you can see the vast valley that's between the two mountains. And so, too, we have come already to that first peak, that first mountain of Jesus' first coming in humility. And so now only coming to that first peak can the vast valley of church history be seen between the two comings. The coming of his first coming in, in humility and then his second coming in power and might to reign over the earth. But this passage, again, speaking of his first coming, shows that coming in humility. And it shows, though, that he is this one to come. He is this promised one. He is this king. He is Lord. He is the rightful king of Israel. He is the promised Messiah, the son of David. And here in Matthew, we see that 
He has every intention on declaring himself to be this. As he offers himself as Israel's king deliberately, as he knows that riding into Jerusalem really is going to bring him to this end of his ministry, because it's going to bring him to his death. He knows exactly what is before him, and yet he goes into Jerusalem declaring himself to be the king by fulfilling this prophecy, riding into Jerusalem, riding into Zion, on a donkey, just as the prophet said, just as King David's first successor, his first son to be king, also did as well. We see in verses 6 to 7, it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So Jesus would have sat on the colt while the mother walked alongside. Uh, Matthew, having been an eyewitness of these things, it was probably recounting what he heard Jesus say and, and what he witnessed, what he saw. He may also have been aware of what Mark wrote in his gospel, if indeed that gospel came first. That there in that gospel, it says that the donkey was one on which no one has ever sat and some suggest, as, as Matthew recounts what he witnessed here, uh, he makes specific mention of the, the colt's mother, because in, in such a situation, with a donkey that was unbroken and unridden, the mother would accompany it to keep it calm, especially within a crowd. And so by Matthew referring to the colt's mother, he is saying pretty much the same thing that Mark was saying, that this, this is a donkey that was not broken in, that, was, that had never been ridden before. And again, this is the week of Passover. Uh, Therefore, at this time, Jerusalem is swelled with Jews from all over Judea and Galilee and and from different parts of the world who had pilgrimed to Jerusalem. Uh, The population of Jerusalem was usually between 200,000 to 250,000. Whereas during the feasts where Jews were required to make a pilgrimage to Israel, uh, the capacity of the city could swell to being up to three million. Now, uh, again, just before our passage here this morning, at the end of chapter 20 here in Matthew, again, it, it tells us of Jesus healing these two blind men while they were leaving Jericho, while there was this crowd with them, which there often was a crowd following Jesus. In this crowd, they had tried to silence the blind men from crying out to Jesus, but, but Jesus did go to them, and Jesus healed them. Again, just as Isaiah said, when Messiah comes, he would heal the blind. He, he would do this. And so the crowd sees this act, this messianic act that Jesus performs, and then now uh, Jesus mounts a colt, and he rides into Jerusalem. And the significance of this is not lost on this crowd. R.C. Sproul said, Deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness of the Old Testament was the hope of the king who would enter Jerusalem as their coming Messiah while riding on a donkey. And we see here, as the crowd is is getting larger and growing, uh, there were those who laid laid their outer garments on the road. As I understand it, Uh, In laying down one's coat for a king to walk on or or for him to ride over, uh, symbolized one laying themselves down to be trampled on. And and so this demonstrated one's submission to the king. 
So they, in doing this, were recognizing Jesus as king and saying that they would submit to him as they laid down their coats. And then others, uh, they did a similar thing with palm branches. Palm branches were used in celebration. They were used to celebrate the Maccabean Revolt, which was when the Jews fought for their freedom against the Greeks between 167 and 160 BC. And palm branches were used to greet Simon Maccabeus into Jerusalem. And so there was great political um, symbolism in waving and, and laying down of these branches. And so by doing so, they showed what kind of Messiah they were looking for in Jesus. So they're recognizing him as their king, as the coming Messiah, but there was a specific kind of Messiah they wanted that they were looking for. And they demonstrate this as they lay down the palm branches. They were looking for a conquering king, one who would rid them of their enemies. They had this messianic hope and really, since this is this Passover week, this hope is heightened. Passover was when Israel celebrated their freedom from Egypt, and now they wanted their freedom from their current oppressor, who at that time was Rome. And so they recognized Jesus as the king, but the king that they wanted. And they lift up praises to Jesus, whose words they take from Psalm 118 and Psalm 148. Psalms that were used in going up to Jerusalem in their pilgrimage for their festivals. So these psalms were used in celebration. And so from these psalms, we see the words they choose. Hosanna, they shout, which literally means to save, but would come to be just a, a word that was generally used for praise. And, and most agree that this is how the crowd must have been using that word here. And they directed these shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, which was a messianic title. And as only the son of David could do, they wanted rescue. And so shouts to, they shout to their king, they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Yes, Hosanna. Yes, you are our king. Uh, you are the king we've been waiting for. The king that we want. Blessed is he who comes the way we want him to. Yeah, I know. That's not exactly what it says. But it will become very clear that's what the intent was. That's really what they were meaning. But the truth of the matter is, they may sing their praises to him as the king that they wanted, but it will soon be clear to them that he will not meet their expectations. He was not the king that they wanted him to be. He was not the king they wanted because he was the king that he was. Because he's the king that he is. And so be with great understanding that we will see eventually that this crowd who is now shouting, Hosanna in the highest, will soon shout, crucify him. And how often does something like this happen? People make professions of faith. They believe in Jesus. But as soon as he does not meet their expectations, 
As soon as he doesn't show himself to be the Jesus that they want, they walk away so often. Is Jesus the king you want him to be? Or are you trusting in the king that he is? The crowd wanted a king to deal with Rome. But he came that time to deal with their sin. Maybe you want a king to fix your problems, whatever it is. It may not be a foreign oppressor like them. Actually, I'm pretty confident it's not. But whatever your problem is, maybe you're looking for this king, that you have this king to fix your problem, to make your life better. But instead, your life gets harder. Maybe you want a Jesus who will fix your marriage, fix your relationships, fix your job, fix your financial situation, fix whatever other hurts that you may be feeling in your life. And instead, the same cycles keep coming over and over again in your life. Is he the king that you trusted in? What did you trust in him for? There's lots of preaching and lots of beckoning to come to Christ for all different kinds of reasons. And so what was the reason that you were beckoned to trust in Christ? Why did you come to him? Very often we hear the call to come to Jesus for the fixing of your life. Come to Jesus for a better circumstances, for a better marriage, for a better job, for a better financial situation, for better whatever it is. For whatever your struggle may be. But is that why we need to call people to Jesus? No, that's not why we call people to Jesus. Is that why you and I were called to Jesus? No. Why were we called to Jesus? Because we have no righteousness. And without righteousness, we can't come to God. We're called to Jesus because we have a sin problem. And Jesus came the first time to deal with our sin. That's why there's a call to Jesus, because we have no righteousness, and he is our righteousness, and there's no righteousness apart from him. That's why we must trust in him, because we've all sinned against God. We've all violated the conscience that he gave us. We've broken his law, and we need a right standing before God based in the life and death of Jesus Christ. He purchased our forgiveness He became our righteousness and the perfect life that he lived so that we can be right before God. And securing our righteousness in his life and death, he rose again. Now, whoever will turn from their sin and from trusting in anything else but him, but to turn to him by faith, trusting in him alone for salvation, that all who trust in him are credited with his righteousness, with his sin-paying death, with his resurrection power to a new life life. Jesus came to deal with our sin. That's the king that he is. So Scott, then I can't trust him for my marriage, can I? No, no, you, you can. Well, Scott, I can't trust him for my financial situation then. No, no, you can. Can I trust him for my job? Can I trust him for my health? Can I trust him for the pain And suffering that I I am going through, can I trust him for that? Yeah. 
you can trust him. Trust him that he will work in you and strengthen you and grow you in your character through those things. Will he fix your marriage? Maybe. Be great if he would, and and maybe he would. But he hasn't promised that. Will he get you out of the debt that you've been in for however long? Maybe. But he hasn't promised that. Will he take away the pain that you've been feeling day by day? I don't know. But I know that as long as he is determined for you to be in that situation, to, to go through those things, that he is determined to be with you and to never forsake you. That he has been determined to work in those things in your heart to make you more like Christ. That your life would stand and shine to, for the glory and honor of his name in everything. That is the king that he is, sovereignly ruling over every circumstance, over everything we go through, over everything that he has preordained to bring into our lives for his honor and his glory, that we would live in such a way that would show that he is the king and he is the worthy king, even if my life still hurts. He is worthy of that. And it demonstrates and is a testimony to the world around us of the kind of king that he is, the king who is worthy of our praises, the king who is worthy of our shouts of Hosanna and glory to God in the highest. He is worthy of these things no matter how our lives may feel and look right now. That he is the kind of king that is not working temporal things for this life that is fleeting, but is working in what is eternal. That he is working in us now to be more like him for the day when he brings us and we, before himself and we see him and are like him as he is. This is the king that he is. He's a king who came first to deal with our sins. He's a king who is coming again to take us into eternal glory. Where yes, we will have no more pain. Where we will have no more conflict. We will be with him in glory forever. But when is that day coming? I don't know. I don't know when he's coming again, but he came once to deal with your sin. He came to deal with Israel's sin. But Israel wanted a king to deal with the Romans. He would deal. He will deal with Israel's enemies. Now, we just talked about that last week for the last five weeks. (laughs) And we see in the prophet of Zechariah, he will deal with Israel's enemies. But he would come first, humbly riding on the foal of a donkey. He would come first, not to win some awesome victory, but to die, to pay the infinite price for the infinite offense of his people's sin against the infinitely holy God. He came first to deal with sin, to die for them and save them. And then in verse 10, we read this. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? All those who were uh, there in Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, uh, they would have been used to Jerusalem teeming with people and, and there being some kind of stirring and uproaring and all those kind of things. But nothing like this, at least during their lifetime, nothing like this. 
There's the stirring, like never before, there's parades and exclamations of praises. Who, who is this that is causing all of this? Who is this? People shouting praises, calling him Messiah. Who is this? Who would ride into Jerusalem like her king? Who is this? Again, the answer given back here really shows that few really knew who he was. Few really understood what it meant for him to be Messiah. Verse 11 says, And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the hide. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is this one who comes in the name of the Lord? Who is this one we're we're saying should be blessed? Who is he? The one we're we're declaring as our king? Well, he's, he's just a prophet. He's just one name in a long list of many names. That's who he is. They didn't understand what it was to call him the son of David. No wonder in just a few days they will change their minds about him. Because they really didn't understand the significance in who he was and why he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. They didn't understand the significance in hailing him as king. How could they miss it? Because they were looking for what they specifically wanted. Because they didn't really want Jesus. They wanted the freedom from the Romans they thought he could bring. They wanted the the pride and dignity in their nation restored. They didn't really want Jesus. They just wanted what they thought they could get from him as king. So they looked to him as a conquering king. He didn't have to be Lord. He didn't have to be God come in the flesh. Even a prophet would do if he would bring about what they wanted. Just as long as he got rid of the Romans. Again, there's a lot of people today who claim to be followers of Christ but cannot give you any significant answer of who he truly is. There are many trusting in him for all kinds of things to fix all kinds of areas of their life. But in trusting in him and coming to Jesus, they don't come because they want Jesus. They come because they want what they want from their life. They don't recognize, they don't realize the significance of who he really is. And so in coming to him, they don't truly know him. They don't truly trust in him to be saved, to have righteousness before God. They don't truly love and follow him. And so they're really not saved by him. When we recognize our need for salvation, we must recognize Jesus for the great and awesome King and Lord that he truly is. We must recognize him and put our trust in him. Not just what he can do for us, but for who he is. That in our salvation, we are being purchased, has been purchased for us eternity with him. To know him and praise him and glorify him. And we recognize the depths of what he has given us in giving us himself. How can we not love him? As we, we recognize what we deserve, we deserve to be, be cast out. We deserve to, to know nothing but wrath. And yet he's given us eternity with him, to know him and be like him. How great is he? We must come to love him for who he is, desire him for who he is, and truly laying down our lives in submission to him, our king. 
Who is this? How do you answer that question? Who, who is this? This is the Christ, the Lord. God come in the flesh. He is Israel's king, absolutely. And he will reign on David's throne over all the earth. But he today sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father as your risen king. That's who he is. Do we know him as such? If we do, do our lives show that we know him as such? We desire him and live for him. We see that he's worthy in everything. He's worthy of, of making his name known, of taking out who he is to the world, as by the authority he has as king, he has called us to do so, right? Uh, we read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. It says there, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and on earth, it's his. He is king. He is the ruler. He is the one that has the authority to tell us to go, and he tells us to go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Why are we going to teach to observe his commandments? Because he's king. He's Lord. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the king who has commissioned his subjects to tell others his message, to tell others of who he is and what he has done. And when we don't, if we don't live a life of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, we live in disobedience to our king. He is king. He's the king who has come, the king that he is. And he is worthy of us making his name known. He is worthy of us living such lives that show that he is great and glorious, that he is the king that rules all over, over all circumstances, over all the universe, and that we would humbly lay down our lives before him. This king is the king who came in lowly, humble estates, laying in a manger. He's the king who has come lowly and humble, the man riding on a donkey. He's the king who is coming again, not on a donkey, but on a white steed. He's the king who came the first time and offered himself to Jerusalem, offered himself as king. But he will come again and set his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and then he will take his place as king. Because he is rightfully the king. My friend, you know him as this king. Not the king that you want, but the king that he is. Do you know him as this great and glorious king? The king who came the first time to deal with your sin. And the king who will come again and will take all his people to be with him in glory. And we will know the hope and the joy of being with our king forever. To reign with him in his kingdom. And to serve him in the new heaven, new earth for all eternity. 
is our king. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.